The church and sex has a very strange relationship. There's heavy obsession around sex, and the vast majority of it is not found anywhere in the Bible. And they twist it and make it about a woman's appearance. I've got this idea that sex is shameful, and my body is shameful and dirty and wrong, and it's so deeply ingrained in my psyche that I have a hard time getting past that. Why are Christians so obsessed with sex? Purity. Freedom from adulteration or contamination. Whether it's true love waits or pledging your abstinence until marriage, staying pure is a huge deal in the Christian community. But what if the way we teach purity actually causes more harm than good? This week, we asked a few guests to call in and share their heart on purity culture. We are for the spiritual nomads the outcast, and the ones who desire to ask the hard questions. A shelter in the desert. A safe place to share our thoughts, our hopes, and our dreams. We are pursuing the truth, and we don't care about the consequences. We invite you to come and sit at our table and be a part of our tribe. We are brave. We are bold. We are the Reckless Pursuit. Hey everyone, welcome to The Reckless Pursuit. My name is Cody. And my name is Elaine. And we are your hosts. This is episode 51. And today we are getting right into some serious topics. If you tuned in last week, we had discussed how we were doing a themed month, which was a pretty fun idea for us. I think we've only done one other themed series, and that was back in October. But this whole month of February is themed toward Love It or Lust It, uh, which was basically the title of our last podcast. But uh, it goes beyond just that. That was talking specifically about church lust and how uh, church members, uh, or I guess churches lust after other churches' members, other churches' things, and just how like the spirit of lust can exist in more ways than just a physical thing. But today, we're getting right into the meat of the conversation, talking about purity culture. And this is a seriously huge topic to get into. Uh, I know a lot of people's first impressions, um, especially if this isn't something you've heard in a negative way before, would be, wait, isn't purity a good thing? We're not advocating premarital sex. I'm not sitting here putting my points of view. Uh, This is a call-in episode, so there's many different opinions on all these different subjects. But the one thing that we see so often is how purity culture within churches, while trying to do something good, actually calls a lot of identity issues and uh, lack of understanding of what sex is and how to be safe with sex and a lot of guilt and shame about our bodies. And so we're just going to dive all into this. We have some amazing, accredited, uh, just super intellectual women that called in and just gave, poured out their heart. And this is just a powerful, powerful episode. It's actually a part one. I'm just going to go ahead and call it because uh, there's just so much here. There's no way we're going to be able to sum this all up in one episode. So this week and next week, that's what we're going to be hitting and just as a, uh, a quick shout out, the end of this month, we have something really cool planned too. So just uh, go ahead and mark your calendars and be looking forward to that because this is going to be 
awesome. We're going to be dealing with the topic of pornography and uh, hypersexualization. So February is just a great month for a deep conversation. And I want to go ahead and follow all that up with this. Uh, we haven't even got into the conversation yet, but this is going to bring out some emotions, some thoughts, and some opinions, and some maybe some hurt and some trauma, or maybe maybe a few things you didn't realize were there. And I'm not saying this. This is not something uh, I'm just saying because I want you to go and click the button by any means. But we have a community where we want you to know that you can go and you can talk and you can be freely expressive of how you feel and of what you're thinking and and what what's happened and a place where you can go and just feel safe to have these conversations and to ask questions. And you are welcome there. So before we jump into this, Elaine, do you have anything before we get right into this conversation? Um, I was just going to say that this topic hits a lot of people. As a woman, um, a lot of these voices that we're going to hear on this episode, they really resonate with me. I never really had any lasting damages, but so many people have been affected by this and not just women, but also men as well. Before we get into it, I just want to tell you that if you have any shame or any guilt, that you are free from that, and that you are not worthless, and that you're not trash, you're not sinful, that you are loved, and God loves you so much. All right, with that, let's get right into this episode on purity culture. So today we're talking about purity culture, and uh, I'm just going to go ahead and just open this up saying like, you know, I, I'm I'm well acquainted with purity culture. I grew up um, in a very charismatic church, and I did true love weights. I have the ring and the, you know, I, I, I don't remember signing a card. I don't know if we did that or not. I know a lot of people do that, but I have like the ring and the commitment. Uh, for me personally, I went through it because I'm stubborn and I didn't want to be a statistic like, oh, I had sex before marriage. Like, I'm very weird with relationships anyway. I'm pretty awkward with relationships, to be honest. Elaine, you can probably vouch for that. And uh, so, like, dating wasn't really my thing. I didn't really enjoy dating much. And so, like, purity came relatively easy for me uh, as far as, like, saving myself for uh, for my wife. But... I will say that I did struggle with pornography, and in that struggle, uh, I very much felt a lot of shame and guilt and that I was no longer worth uh, worth it because I had committed a, a sexual sin. And so I did have some of the shame we're going to be talking about in this episode, so I can, I can relate a little bit, at least on, the, on a small scale. To some of this. And Elaine, I believe you had a story similar that actually happened in your school, right? Yeah. So um, if you've been listening to our podcast, you know that we are in the Southern Belt. And um, so I went to a public school. But since we are in the Southern Belt, there was a lot of, um, you know, conservative viewpoints. You know, we had like religious groups on campus, stuff like that. Um, so it was predominantly around the Christian culture. I remember I was in eighth grade and they had true love weights. Um, I think like a majority of some of the pastors around kind of came to the school and um, kind of talked about true love weights and all the things that came with it. 
Now, for me specifically, I don't ever remember youth pastors um, making people feel worthless if they had messed up or anything like that. I don't ever remember any youth pastors or religious leaders like throwing it down people's throats and um, just making them feel sinful. But I do remember the school um, advocated that if you had premarital sex, you would get chlamydia, you would get um, AIDS, you would get all kinds of STDs. They constantly showed pictures of all of the worst, the worst, the worst STDs you could see and experience. And they said, if you have premarital sex, this could happen to you. Now, one, that's kind of um, gruesome to show a bunch of young teenagers of just a bunch of uh, photos of these kinds of things. And it was almost like a scare tactic of like, if you have premarital sex, you're going to have this kind of like the quote Mean Girls where he's like, if you have sex, you will die kind of thing. Like you'll get, you'll automatically get pregnant. You will die. You made the worst decision of your life, blah, blah, blah. And I remember there was a skit where the girl was supposed to be this flower and she was this beautiful flower and all the guys wanted her, um, but she was saving herself from marriage. But then she slowly started having sex with guys and her petals started wilting and falling off and she was just this worthless, useless, dead flower. All the people that she had sex with took her petals from her and she was just worthless. And I don't think that that is very beneficial. Telling people, telling women specifically that if you have sex with men, especially before a marriage, that you you are a worthless flower. So this whole purity culture conversation, uh, it stirs up a lot of emotions, and I just want to go ahead and hit a few key points. And we're about to we're about a minute away from hearing uh, some really great input uh, from someone other than just Elaine and I, but. I just want to share real quick a few things that purity culture um, tries to do, but inadvertently causes. Purity culture tries to keep people from making these long-lasting connections um, that they will regret. It's a fair intention. In return, it creates awkward people or it creates people who are afraid of their own identities and it actually can lead people to making those choices because there's so much negativity and no positivity. Purity culture tries to teach about the dangers of sex. The problem is purity culture doesn't actually teach any of the dangers. It uses scare tactics. And the last big one, and this is something that I'm sure is going to get hit pretty much right off the bat. Uh, and I've seen this too from a man's perspective. So this isn't just like man shaming or whatever. This is just a weird, crooked viewpoint we have. Purity culture is primarily targeted at women. It's intending to try to keep women, quote unquote, safe. But what it does is it takes responsibility away from men's actions and puts it all on the weight of women. And just like Elaine's story of the flower, well, we didn't talk about the men's side of things. You know, there's just as much going there, but all that weight, the way a woman dresses and acts and behaves or believes, uh, the mistakes she's made, all that weight falls on her, and men often get a free pass. So let's get right into uh, some guest call-ins, and just an FYI, we're not using real names for the most part, uh, unless otherwise noted that that was allowed, just to protect the anonymity of our guests. 
So we're going to listen to guest number one, and we're going to call her Susan. Here's what she has to say. I went to university to a big secular school in, in Western Canada, and I grew up in an evangelical home, but nothing super conservative. Um, my family was a bit, I would say, dysfunctional, um, but in terms of the Christianity that we practiced, it was pretty moderate in terms of its kind of sexual ethic or around there. I went on to study gender and sexuality, particularly from a historical point of view. So I specialized in the Bible and how it understands um, issues related to um, gender and sexuality, and particularly to women and other sexual minorities. In 2013, I experienced quite a bit of mental health issues, and I was in and out of counseling, and um, I wasn't quite sure what was going on. I was having quite severe anxiety um, and panic disorders, and I eventually ended up being suicidal and eventually my psychologist recognized that what was going on for me is that I was in an abusive situation in my marriage and um, I'd been married for 10 years and I'd gotten married really young. We're both Christians and I was very surprised. I hadn't really seen that coming. I knew something was not quite right, something didn't quite feel right, but all my friends kept, you know, throwing books at me to helped me um, kind of build a better marriage and no one ever had said anything about anything kind of being wrong so um, I just kind of continued on eventually for 12 years as I was getting more sick and more sick and and I realized um, now that this was um, not okay and this was abuse I tried really hard to convince my friends that I should be allowed to leave and everyone was kind of uncomfortable with that suggestion um, my pastors were uncomfortable with that suggestion, so eventually I just had to make the choice and to lose all my friends in my community um, and get up and leave. And it was the most hardest thing I've ever done, but now that I look back on it and I wonder, like, why, why do so few people um, support someone who wants to get out of that situation? And I have really come to recognize that they are so influenced by the rhetoric around purity culture and things related to purity culture, I would say really unhealthy versions of theology that keep people in these really unhealthy places where they can't thrive. And we talk about the very obvious versions of purity culture where you have a ring or you, um, you know, the like the purity balls that they have and um, all those types of things. But there's a huge, it's kind of like the iceberg on the top of everything. And then you have the entire underside of it, which is all the things that we don't recognize um, that are happening to us. Yeah, I like to kind of view purity, purity culture in its bigger context of ways of controlling others. And I think it's often um, not particularly clear when people are using um, these modes of control. I think there's some people who are more conscious than others of what they're doing. So I think what it makes makes it particularly bad is when things are subtle. When you're thinking about how sick I was um, and how much I, I wanted to get out of that situation, essentially boiled down to feeling like I was not being believed. And so there was a lot of this kind of subconscious um, feelings of guilt that I had about leaving. Like I felt like I was leaving because I I somehow was the, the guilty one in this situation who wanted to leave and I shouldn't 
want to get out of a situation like that and maybe I wasn't perfect either so I should stay or maybe I needed to learn how to love more because that's what a good Christian does um, or that I needed to turn the other cheek or forgive and you know forgiveness is used kind of like a weapon in these kinds of situations and there's this combination of, of me believing those things and, and me hearing them from church and then believing that they're coming from God and hearing them from my friends. And so all of that makes it really difficult. And I think all of those things are in some way tied to purity culture. Within purity culture, we create this dichotomy between men and women, that men and women are inherently different. There's different roles. And even though I grew up relatively liberal and I definitely believed um, in egalitarianism and that women could lead in the church. Certainly from my friends and a variety of other sources, I was hearing um, this, these excuses being made for him all the time. That, you know, I needed to read a bunch of books and become better at setting boundaries. And he didn't really need to do anything. He was just, you know, a guy. And guys will be guys and guys don't know how to communicate. I heard that a lot that I needed to learn how to communicate better and that would make things better. And um, one of the other things I wanted to talk about is um, people always say, well, why, why are Christians so obsessed with sex? It actually has very little to do with sex. I think um, it's really more about how easy it is to use sex in people's bodies to control and to maintain um, status quo. And one way that you can see that it's really not about sex, that it's really about control, is that advocates who, you know, strongly oppose sex before marriage because, you know, it's a, quote, unhealthy kind of relationship and that, you know, they care about you and they want you to have healthy relationships. Um, it doesn't make sense then why those same people don't care when you're in a marriage and you're having unhealthy sexual relationships within those marriages. Um, if they really cared about healthy sexual relationships, then that's probably where we should focus. So something that kind of stood out to me um, as Susan was sharing her story was that how she had talked about that she was in an abusive relationship and she kind of wasn't able to process what was happening. You know, she had talked about um, her mental stability. She had become suicidal and was kind of going back and forth on what to do. Um, you know, her and her husband were both Christians, had been married young, and she her psychologist had started noticing just these behavioral patterns and realized that she was in an abusive relationship, but she didn't really know what to do and that she had thoughts of leaving. But whenever she told her um, friends and family that she was thinking about leaving and wasn't sure what to do, they were really uncomfortable and almost didn't really help in a way. They didn't really say, oh yeah, you should leave. But they also didn't say directly, oh, you should stay. And I think sometimes that can be the problem with um, purity culture is that it really confuses us on what to do in the relationships that we have cultivated when things are different, especially within marriage. Yeah, I mean, I like what she said is, you know, it can be used as a way of control. And whether that be like passively, unknowingly, unbeknownst to them, or it be very well um meaning that way and i've heard plenty of relationships where people have used that as a weapon and that's what she said forgiveness can be a can be used as a weapon and uh i think it's a very interesting idea a very interesting truth that the fact that 
whenever you're in a situation such as that, an abusive uh, relationship, something like that, and it reminds me of my mom, her first marriage um, was an abusive marriage, and and the guilt she had of uh, trying to, you know, at, at one point in her life, she had a guilt with leaving because that was the ungodly, quote-unquote, thing to do because we're taught that you're, you know, you are to forgive and forgive and forgive. And, and while, yes, forgiveness is great, there's also a time when, if you're being abused, you have to act. You cannot live in abuse. Like, God would not want that for you. And so many people, divisive, whether it be within, like, a husband-wife situation, whether it be a church situation, does very much use that as a, as a ball and chain, as a lock to keep someone held down, uh, either out of fear or out of just their, their own unbeknownst knowing of what they're doing. Well, and I think it's interesting that in purity culture, I guess specifically within churches, conservative churches, um, they say, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex. It's bad, it's bad, it's bad. Premarital marriage just leads to all these problems. But then they also say, but once you're married, sex life is great. It is the best thing ever. You know, it's so great. You know, like, just wait a little bit longer. Once you get married, it'll be all worth it. But then what happens whenever you do wait and then you do get married but then it's not what the church told you it was going to be you know all of what we're talking about right here uh, our next guest megan actually does a fantastic job summing up so we're actually going to come back to the first part of what she said probably in the second episode and we're going to cut to the second part of what she said so here's that right now hi my name is megan kohler and i'm a licensed counselor here in idaho one of my um, focuses has to do with sex positivity, and um, I have different education classes for parents on how to raise sex-positive kids, and I do lots of different workshops for women um, trying to figure out how to become more sex-positive in their lives and in their relationships. And the reason why this is a focus of mine is because I see it permeating in family structures and women individually, and it's really causing a lot of problems. Uh, and oftentimes it can be directly or indirectly related to the purity culture within different churches. The church and sex has a very strange relationship. There's heavy obsession around sex, and the vast majority of it is not found anywhere in the Bible. And the majority of it is being directed towards specific theology, specific interpretation, specific patriarchal rules. And it is essentially to control women and make sure that women are not enjoying sex and wanting it because that's something that a lot of men who are in charge are uncomfortable with. The church does a horrible job of educating and influencing people in terms of sex being a positive and healthy thing. Um, I speak at a lot of progressive churches here in my community in Idaho, and I am continuously being asked to come back to teach my class how to raise sex-positive kids because it really gives a lot of leeway in terms of allowing families to maintain their values and their religious values, but they're able to talk about sex in a really healthy and positive manner. 
And for those churches that are stepping up and realizing how important this is, I commend them. It's it's such a powerful, wonderful thing. But so many churches want nothing to do with me or the class or the discussion on sex because, you know, they feel like they have the answers and the answers is essentially found in, in the purity culture. And in doing so, churches are not talking at all about the good of sex. And that's incredibly important. They're not talking about the positives. They're only focusing on the negatives. And in doing so, you're basically raising groups of tweens and teens to not be able to identify what a healthy relationship looks like. They're not able to identify what their own sexual wants and desires are. And they're constantly seeing sex as a threat and it's dangerous and sinful. Um, If you're only going to talk about something in one side of the conversation and discussion. You're going to have a lot of dysfunction, but you're also not going to be able to um, identify when something is wrong. So what I always talk about in my classes at different churches, if we talk about what a healthy relationship looks like, if we talk about consent, if we talk about how consent and anything sexually related should be enthusiastic, everybody should want to be involved, everybody's needs should be met, the relationship should be an even balance, there shouldn't be um, you know, somebody who has power over the other person, they should be equally involved, and it should be a loving, safe type of relationship. By addressing the positives, kids, teens, tweens, adults are able to identify when something is inappropriate, when something is not okay. And also, this topic is being discussed at church and within families. And so if something is not right, if somebody touches a child or if you feel like you're in an abusive, unhealthy relationship, the topic of sex is not taboo. You're able to go and talk about it and seek out help instead of just being stuck in this abusive situation. So the church needs to do a much better job of making sure that they open the box, um, shed some light on the topic of sex, and talk about it, and talk about it also in a positive way so that we see less abuse and much more healthy sexual relationships in the future. It, It absolutely needs to happen. Uh, The church does not provide tools on really how to prevent abuse. Um, They don't differentiate between the positive and negative. And, you know, that is incredibly harmful. And also it's sending that message again because oftentimes sex is only talked about in the context of marriage. That women cannot be sexual human beings unless they have a husband. So therefore women do not have ownership over their own bodies. And that is damaging It's really hard to flip the switch in your mind on your wedding night, let's say, to suddenly enjoy sex, understand it, be comfortable with it, um, understand that it's safe and good and should feel good. When your entire life you've been taught that it's sinful, evil, dangerous, and horrible transgressions will happen if you suddenly tap into your sexual self. So we find that there's just a lot of stunted individuals who just do not understand how to operate in a healthy sexual relationship. And coincidentally, we see a ton of porn addiction with people who are a part of or have grown up in the purity culture because sex is seen as evil and secretive and seedy. They can't talk about what they like. They um, are 
having a hard time being sexual with another person because they've been taught that it's wrong their whole life. It's easier to somehow try to be sexual with yourself and a computer. Um, And then the ways that people want to address and treat porn addiction within these pretty sexually conservative faith uh, communities is to also treat it with more shame. Um, And shame is what has driven people into the dark with porn addiction. I see a lot of issues with this, and I also see a lot of ways that even conservative Christians who have pretty strict um, rules on sex could do just a little bit of tweaking in, in their conversations and make it less negative and more positive. And I honestly feel like we would see a much healthier group of people coming out of um, conservative churches in regards to sex. Um, I see tons of different married couples in my practice and women individually who feel like they've been robbed of a part of their soul. I mean, you know, sexuality is one of the key pillars of who we are as a human being, our soul. And to ignore it and not teach people, you know, healthy boundaries, not teach people how to um, appreciate it and love it and work with it and at the same time, you know, make sure that we're consenting and understand other people's needs. We are we are just not educating. We're stunting this part of our soul and it's causing a lot of unhappiness. I see the church as a great way of changing that. I feel like there's so many great points being made and just we only have so much time. That's why we're chopping this up into two episodes. So going back on what we were just talking about, uh, Megan hit some amazing points there uh, just in relation to what you were saying with Elaine. Go ahead with that. Basically from our first guest, she was talking about how she was in an abusive relationship and how growing up in purity culture, they always say like premarital sex is bad. You're sinful. You're doing bad things. You know, women feel like they're um, a burden. They feel like um, they are the problem. And at the same time, a lot of churches are like, hey, sex is amazing when you're married. It's the best thing ever. Just wait a little bit longer and you will understand. But like our first guest was talking about, when she got married, she realized she was in an abusive relationship and she tried to leave. And she was like, I don't know what to do. And a lot of people were uncomfortable. They didn't know how to talk about what you should do when your sex life isn't great as a married Christian. Well, and and even more so with that, I just, I like what she was saying about how um, teaching just the negatives of everything and that this is something evil and taboo and not to be talked about or to be expressed. uh, It actually leads to, to teenagers, tweenagers not understanding what an unhealthy relationship looks like, which also leads back to what Susan was saying about how it can be used as a form of control And since guys often get this free pass and women don't, it locks them into this, that, that exact very thing because guys are more, uh, you know, gifted with that freedom, with that expression. And now uh, something else she said, and I just want to hit on this here, uh, very boldly because, uh, I'm not advocating for premarital sex. And I just want to say that, like I I said that in the beginning, I just want to reiterate that here. That's not what we're saying. We're, we're, you know, that is uh, your beliefs in your, you know, your specific area where you're allowed to believe how you feel on that. And I'm not sitting here advocating that everyone go and tell their kids to have premarital sex. It's not it at all. What 
we are advocating for here is healthy understandings of a natural part of our existence. Because without that, there is no understanding of boundaries. There's no understanding of uh, of that side of us, who we are, who we are created to be in that light. Uh, it does lead, uh, just as she kind of got into a little more, and uh, you know, after uh, what we were originally talking about, Elaine, she got into the fact about how this can lead into pornography and how people don't know how to express themselves sexually, so it actually leads them into the darkness because they're scared to tell someone that they find something attractive. They're scared to express with their leaders the desires they're feeling and things like that because they're afraid of being shamed and getting attacked. But but all that to say, uh, what I was about to say is, I love how how Megan said that uh, churches only focus on the negatives, um, but you can have positive uh, sex teaching in church and still maintain your religious values. It's not a trade-off. You don't have to trade sex teaching for religion. That's not it at all. Uh, this isn't a uh, if, and, then, or situation. This is, you know, God created something in us, and he's given us the means to understand it, but instead we're afraid of it. It's kind of like um, in old-timey Pentecostalism, how you would never say the name of the devil because you just didn't know when he was going to come after you. Well, that's that's a flawed logic. You shouldn't sit there in terror of something whenever you serve a God who's bigger than that. Well, the same thing with sex. He created it. We've got to quit being afraid to talk about it. Well, and especially what Megan said about how like you're taught it's this bad thing until you're married, but then it stunts a lot of growth in both men and women. But specifically for women, they're taught that their bodies are bad. But then whenever they're married, their bodies are great. And it makes them very uncomfortable because they don't know how to enjoy sex because they had been taught that they weren't supposed to enjoy sex. So how do you all of a sudden one night say, oh, yeah, like I'm great at sex. I know what I'm doing. It's amazing my body is free, like, I understand my sexuality, my individuality, I understand my partner, when all along you were being taught the complete opposite. But just because we teach about sex doesn't mean kids are going to go out and start having sex. Quite the opposite. The more educated, the better choices people will make. And fear tactics are no way to try to control someone from doing something. Uh, if someone's going to do something, they're going to do it. We can't fear that out of them. We can't scare that out of them. All we end up doing when we try to scare someone is we end up scarring someone. So next, let's transition into what Natalie has to say about sexual blame. I was raised a Baptist young lady and for the first about 13 years of my life went to Baptist school and youth group and and I uh, was kind of raised in that evangelical process and of course as soon as girls are old enough to even think about hitting puberty we are introduced to the idea of purity culture um, what this taught me was that my body is dirty and that my body is wrong and that my body exists only for the pleasure of a man. And if I allow that man to pleasure himself using my body, I have not only committed a horrible sin for myself, but I have caused him to sin. Um, sex, of course, is completely on the woman and we are the temptresses and, um, the worst thing we can possibly do is cause our brothers to sin. And I 
can pretty much guarantee that anyone who is a proponent of purity culture is going to say, we don't teach women their bodies are wrong, and we don't teach girls that their bodies are dirty or that they, they are using them to sin. But the problem is, even though these things aren't being said out loud, this is exactly what they're teaching young girls. And I understand that the, the, the purpose of them is to attempt to keep girls from teenage pregnancy and attempt to keep girls from falling into the emotional pitfalls that come from um, uncommitted sexual relationships, but that's not what you're teaching them. That's not what you're teaching them at all. You're teaching them that they're worthless unless they are sexually pure to the men that they eventually marry and that their worth is completely tied up in their sexuality. What this taught me as a child is not only is my body akin to a cow or a crumpled piece of paper or a ripped up dollar bill that I can never get the value of it back if I allow a man to sin using me, but it taught me that if a man does something wrong to me, it's my fault and I should be ashamed of that. It taught me that from the time I was five to eight years old and a family member was sexually abusing and raping me almost daily, that I couldn't tell anybody about that because I was the one to blame. And unfortunately, the church agrees with this, even though they say they don't. If you ask any pastor or anybody teaching these purity conferences, if that's what they mean, they're gonna say no, but that's what they're saying. And I wish people would think about that. And I wish people would hear us when we say how damaging this is to young women and how when I got married one day and I'm supposed to enjoy sex like the Bible says I'm supposed to and like all of these pastors and purity conference leaders say I'm supposed to, I've got this idea that sex is shameful and my body is shameful and dirty and wrong and it's so deeply ingrained in my psyche that I have a hard time getting past that. Um, marital sex becomes something that people don't look forward to, unfortunately, or if they do, they have all of these expectations that just aren't realistic about sex. And unfortunately, the lack of sexual education uh, completely contributes to this. So what we're told is sex is wrong, sex is bad, sex is dirty, sex will devalue you as a human being. Um, until you get married and then it's amazing and wonderful and procreative and it's God's design. But there's no, there's no segue to that. There's no way of telling a, a young woman how to properly enjoy her body, just what not to do. Um, I, th I think it's wrong. I think it's absolutely detrimental to a young woman's self-esteem. And I think that if we acknowledge sex for what it is in the church and we tell people that, yes, it's a pleasurable experience, but it can lead to unintended consequences like an unintended pregnancy or like emotional baggage that comes along with differing ideas of commitment within that relationship, we would be doing much more of a service to our women.
I love how all of these guests just hit on some of these points so solidly. And just going back to what we were just talking about with how uh, the shame of coming into a marriage when you've been taught something is wrong for so long. And something that she talked about specifically was just how it attributes to rape culture. And we don't want to associate these things. You know, we definitely don't want to associate, oh, well, you know, purity culture and rape culture, they, those are two things that shouldn't go hand in hand. But, you know, they, they could very well go hand in hand. And specifically, uh, the idea that, for one, a woman doesn't own her body. And I understand that that might not be the common teaching everywhere anymore, but there are still uh, pockets where that is taught, that a woman does not own her body at all. Uh, and then secondly, and most importantly, to me, is the idea that a woman can't voice when something feels off to her because she doesn't either, one, recognize it because she doesn't understand uh, sex, doesn't understand um, the nuances of what's happening. Uh, she can't keep herself safe from a predator because she doesn't understand predatorial behaviors and that reminds me just all the way back to uh you know our episode with christy way back when you know toward the beginning of this of this podcast and it just it's so frustrating because the last thing is feeling if someone if a woman has been violated uh feeling like they are now worthless like they have been robbed of something um or they cause someone to sin or what have you, and then they take the guilt and the shame of that on themselves, and they're too afraid to talk to anyone, to call out an accuser, to speak up, because the guilt and the shame on them is so heavy, they feel like they're going to be uh, condemned, they feel like they're sinning, like God no longer loves them, no longer wants them, no longer values them, and they, they keep it to themselves because they take that burden on themselves, and they're afraid of the backlash they're going to receive because they truly believe that they are at fault. And that, like, that, that's not okay at all. What is really interesting to me about what Natalie had to say about her story was, you know, she talked about how when she was age five through eight, she was being raped repeatedly and felt like it was her fault. No five-year-old should be told that it was their fault if... Um, a man or a woman um, rapes them or touches them inappropriately. And the fact that she, as a kid, felt like it was her fault just completely is just completely wrong. And why are we teaching children? Why are we teaching women and girls that it's their fault if something bad happens to them? Why are women to blame for someone else's actions? And it just really just fires me up that even a kid as young as five through eight felt like they couldn't even tell anybody what was going on or that they didn't even realize what was going on, but they realized or that they thought that it was their fault, even though they didn't really know what was going on. Well, see, and the thing about that too is they grow up. And so you may say to yourself like, well, how do you teach? Like we have the basic principles of like, you know, we teach our kids where uh, people aren't allowed to touch you. Always let me know if someone touches you there, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, you have the whole other, like there's so many dynamics here. You have the whole thing of a lot of times that the family member assaulting a young one and they feel like they can trust them and they don't understand what's wrong. 
And, you know, there's just a lot that goes into that. But the big one with this, the big takeaway with the whole purity culture thing tying in directly is when you get old enough to realize. So, like, maybe this has happened to you. Now you're old enough, but you now all of a sudden you hear this for the first time being told to you about how shameful your behavior in the past has been. Even though you had no control over it, you, you adopt that shame and you grow up with that shame. And a lot of times it's going to lead you to making um, more decisions that can cause more hurt and it puts you in a place of of really just vulnerability toward other attacks because you're you're isolated and you don't feel you have the ability to speak up so the last thing i want to hit on here is just a little of what actually causes us to misinterpret and to put some of the blame or put the blame on women and just some of these misinterpretations uh that we often use in the Bible, and we use these scriptures pretty regularly to um, attack women on just their appearance and modesty, and we throw those the modesty word around, and, and just uh, kind of what that really is and what that really looks like, and just kind of broaden our perspective on this. And uh, our next call in, Hannah, uh, she and I were conversing uh, a little bit, and just some of the stuff she was saying to me was just amazing and just so enlightening. And I, I asked her to share here, and I'm so thankful she did. So let's take a listen to that. Most of the verses that I have seen used the most is 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 10, and 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4. And this goes into what a woman's appearance should be, what they should wear, what they shouldn't wear, and complementarian theology or patriarchy within churches takes these verses that were actually about hoarding and flaunting your wealth and they twist it and make it about a woman's appearance and is actually not about our appearance as women at all it's actually going back to the spirit of the law connected to the Ten Commandments, which is um, this particular commandment is Exodus 20:17, which is thou shalt not covet. It goes into coveting your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's earthly possessions. In a number of scriptures throughout the Bible, this is a reoccurring theme because this is the spirit of that law that's being reintroduced and restated over and over and over about how covetousness and envy is actually idolatry. And it produces a lot of toxic harm to yourself, to your family, and to your community. What patriarchy within the church did is it coveted a woman's autonomy. And it steals it from her by trying to control her in how she dresses and who she is to marry or not to marry. So she is now an object a possession to produce more wealth or to produce more earthly monetary gain or earthly pleasure through an object. It makes a woman an object. It produces idolatry within men. So they're not just sinning against a woman. They're also sinning against God because of this. And it's all connected to coveting. And it takes that covetousness that men and women can both be guilty of and it puts all of the blame and responsibility on women for causing a man to stumble or for causing a man to lust for causing a man to covet her 
when that's not what's happening. The only thing that is happening is a very simple fact that men and women can covet monetary wealth and gain for personal pleasure. And we want to hoard it and flaunt it. And these verses are telling new converts to Christianity in the New Testament, taking new converts that used to worship goddesses or gods and used to have all manner of idolatry, they're converting them to Christianity and they're revolutionizing their thought about wealth. So they're taking their status and saying, you have this status, you have this wealth. Now it's time for you to reject that classism, reject that status and use it to build up your community and to love your neighbors, which will also prove that you love God. This is about cultivating your heart and your character. It has nothing to do with sexuality but the church made it about sexuality and the problem with that is it doesn't just shame women for showing too much skin purity culture leaves people without a proper understanding of their own sexuality and how crucial it is to part of their identity and who they are as image bearers of christ the whole idea of modesty is so interesting to me the idea that because a woman uh, wears shorts that are just, um, you know, above her knees or wears a bathing suit on the beach. And that is cause and grounds for man to stumble. And somehow she has to bear the responsibility for that baffles me. Uh, you know, the Super Bowl just passed and I was reading a bunch of, uh, comparisons to Janet Jackson's accident with her nip slip back, uh, back when, whatever year that was, and then um, the lead singer of Maroon 5, I don't know his name. Is it Adam Levine. Adam Levine, yeah. And how he took his shirt off and had all his tattoos and, you know, his pelvic line and all that was showing. And it's like, well, where did this double standard come from? And, and while I'm not advocating for nudity or I'm also not advocating to wear turtlenecks and denim in the middle of July, you know what I mean? Like modesty is a concept that we have created and it is a mentality and a mindset in the hearts of people and i loved what hannah was saying about how these bible verses are taken out of context when you look at it of like these people are coming from worshiping wealth and goddesses and gods and idols you know brazen images of gold and silver and bronze and now they're coming to christianity and they're being taught humility and and how to care for one another instead of just serving a false deity, uh, it really opens your perspective to realize like, oh, wait, wait, you mean the whole hair business and jewelry and all that was actually more of uh, the church's way of saying, hey, let's not adorn ourselves to worship this God, to to flaunt it uh, as much as it is, hey, like, let's be more together, like, let's be more of a community. So, you know, there's a lot of churches and a lot of denominations and such that really shun even simple things like earrings or what have you. But, you know, even on a lesser scale, but still the same thing all the way down to people uh, in more, you know, open churches shaming girls for having shorts that are too short when there's a lot of girls who can't find shorts long enough. You know, that's a big problem if a girl has too long legs. It's hard to get shorts that are long enough. That being said, like, 
sure, there's a balance. It's not saying that you have to try to be over-sexualized. It's saying if you're trying to present yourself that way, that's the way you're presenting. But it's all a mindset and a mentality and a heart thing. Uh, and modesty is not what we think it is. And lust is not what we think it is so often. And the way a woman dresses is not directly tied to how a man uh, lusts after her. The same way how a man dresses should not be directly tied to how a woman lusts after him. And it's interesting because uh, the human body, anatomy in and of itself, um, we have created into this idol that we lust after. And it's the idolatry of it that we lust after. But in and of itself, it's beautiful, and it was created in God's image. And uh, it's all just a matter of bringing people to a proper understanding of what it is. Kind of like what I said at the very beginning of the episode, you know, I kind of, for the most part, had a positive outlook on purity culture. But it's interesting to me how Hannah points out about these scriptures that are used to abuse women. But it's interesting to me how churches and religious leaders use these scriptures about coveting uh, your neighbor and purity and modesty. And I feel like all of those things go way beyond just sex, kind of like our episode last week about um, lusting after people, not in a sexual way, but lusting after people you don't have, lusting after other, other churches, congregation, and just reaching other people's people in, in a sense. And how modesty isn't, oh, you need to dress appropriately. You need to dress a certain way so somebody doesn't lust after you. It Sure, it could mean that, but it goes way beyond that. You know, it's, it's teaching humility and not flaunting and showing off all these great things that you have um, to say, oh, look at me, I'm better than you. Well, sure. I mean, in essence, you know, modesty is the same as the person who you know, uh, wants you to see all his cool investments or like all his cool, uh, big fancy house and flashy cars. Like that's immodest just as much as someone else who, you know, uh, is trying to gather the wrong attention. And it's all about coveting, you know, coveting what someone else has. And the biggest thing that I loved what Hannah said there, the biggest thing of all is objectifying someone else and trying to make them just an object. And this actually, I'm going to kind of close it out with this. It, it reminds me, and this was actually from a woman in uh, in a church that said this of all places or of all people, you know, uh, it came from a woman. But I remember when you and I first started dating Elaine, um, after service, someone had met you and their first comment was, well, isn't she a pretty little uh, object or isn't she accessory, a, pretty, yeah. a pretty little accessory? And like that cut right to me. I'm like, whoa, okay, what a weird, a weird mentality to have. But it's because that's a mentality that's been taught. I wish I could do justice to all I want to say on all of these amazing points, but I'm just so thankful that so many people can benefit from what these women have shared. And I'm so thankful that they were willing to and I'm so thankful that we have enough to keep going. Guys, we did not, I feel like we didn't scratch the surface. I feel like this whole uh, two-parter here isn't even going to scratch the surface, but we're not even halfway into everything everyone had to say. And so we're going to try to get this all together for you for next week. And we're going to be talking about uh, the differences between men and women in purity culture, 
uh, how we can properly talk about sex and a balance that we have to achieve between too much and not enough education, uh, how to give proper direction in just sex edu- uh, education in general, and a big one here that I know is a hot topic right now, how purity culture actually can contribute to abortion. There's a lot coming up, and we want to uh, just share this with you. Guys, if you want to be notified for when these episodes come out, go down to the bottom or top, depending on what you're on. Click that subscribe button. You'll be notified every time something comes out, every time a new episode is released, and all kind of good stuff, our blog, uh, these podcasts, our videos are all linked up on therecklesspursuit.com. So go there. You can find all kind of stuff. Send us an email. Drop us a voicemail. Say hi. And, of course, the Reckless community. We would love to have you a part of the Reckless community to keep this conversation going and give you a safe place to ask questions and share. If you enjoy this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you'd go and leave us an honest review. That would help us a lot to know what we're doing right and what we can do better. Tune in next week for part two of Purity Culture. And as always, be brave, be bold, and be reckless. We'll talk soon.